With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of 3,000 Years of Longing. My name is Alethea. My story is true. I am a solitary creature by nature. I have no children, no siblings, no parents. I did once have a husband. If there is fate, who can say? But in the Grand Bazaar of Istanbul, I chose a memento. I like it. Whatever it is, I'm sure it has an interesting story. So, what would you wish for? What is your heart's desire? I do have a question. What does one do with three wishes? You'll see. about wishing that is not a cautionary tale. We all have desires, even if they remain hidden from us. But it is your story, and I cannot wait to see where it goes. Oh, how it might end. Hello. Hello. He'll be staying for a while. Beginning to wish we'd never met. Don't say that! Make a wish! Save yourself! I have a wish. Everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for 3,000 Years of Longing, and the story is as follows. Dr. Alafia Bini is an academic and creature of reason. While in Istanbul, attending a conference, she encounters a jinn who offers her three wishes in exchange for his freedom. Eventually, she makes a wish that surprises them both. The film is starring Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. It is directed and written by George Miller, co-written by Augusta Gore, and here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Amy Smith. Hi, everyone. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Daniel Howitt. Hello. All right, so 3,000 Years of Longing, a movie that I feel like we were all longing to see for a long time, premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. Amy, that's where you saw it. And I know that there was a lot of anticipation behind this one, mostly because of the fact that George Miller was hot off the success of his most critically acclaimed and, I mean, just overall successful in terms of Oscars and box office film to date with Mad Max Fury Road. So 
the passion and the energy and the enthusiasm was all there from everyone who, I mean, we've all loved George Miller for a while, but it feel like his appreciation just reached new levels back in 2015. And so now, you know, because of the success of Mad Max Fury Road, it does feel like he has like entered a certain type of level in the public consciousness as far as yeah this guy's always been great but now we can truly appreciate like and look back on how great his career has always been and when you do look back on that career you see that the guy rarely if ever i mean other than the mad max sequels the guy never repeats himself the witches of eastwick lorenzo's oil babe pig in the city happy feet mad max fury road and now 3,000 Years of Longing. I mean, does this guy have the most random filmography of anyone that you've ever met or what? And there's one thing that I think connects them all together, and that is that uh, George Miller is really all about the magic of storytelling, the magic of filmmaking. And a lot of his movies do delve into the unnatural, the supernatural, and things that the on- only the cinematic medium can uh, give us. So if 3,000 Years of Longing, in a lot of ways, it's a movie that, you know, when you watch it, given the production budget of it all at $60 million, it really does feel like the kind of movie that a filmmaker gets to make only after they've had a success like Mad Max Fury Road, where the studio just goes, okay, we're not going to give you like $200 million, but here is a very generous budget offering to go do whatever the hell you want. And in a lot of ways, I feel like that's what 3,000 Years of Longing is. It's like George Miller just unleashed in a way that is absolutely bombastic. It is crazy. It's a kaleidoscopic a mixture of all these different ideas and tones. And it's a cinematic experience that I know that when we all, when we all saw the trailer, we all thought, wow. This is definitely going to be something worth seeing and worth talking about. Whether it's good or bad, it doesn't matter. It's definitely going to be unique. So now that we're at this moment where we have seen it, what do we think of it? Let's go to Amy first, because Amy, like I said, you were at the uh, world premiere over at the Cannes Film Festival for it. How did it live up to your expectations? What did you think of it? Yeah, so my expectations for this film going in, I wasn't quite sure what to think because the big thing to note is that it wasn't in competition. It was just playing as a premiere. And to me, that kind of set level of expectations a little lower because I was thinking, like, if this was amazing, why wouldn't they have it compete for the Palm d'Or or any of the major prizes? But I went in anyway. It's George Miller and... I'm really conflicted on this film still to this day. I think the technical aspects are as strong as you would expect George Miller to be. The score in particular, I think, is probably still one of my favourite scores to this day, like for this year. I think it's a fantastic arrangement. And I think Elban Swinton at the heart of it makes a really good like dynamic duel. But I almost wish the story focused more on them and not the sort of three little stories that we do get about the djinn's 3,000 years of longing. I kind of didn't care about these three stories, no matter how open and vast these worlds were. And then I found the final act to kind of end and feel incredibly rushed. And for a film that's under two hours, I think this film would have actually benefited from another 20, 30 minutes to further explore these themes and explore the relationship between Alethea and the djinn. So I'm really conflicted because 
I want to see more stories like this. I love the originality. I love the world building. I love the technicality of everything that was presented. I just don't think it was presented in a way that gripped me emotionally the way I expected it to. Okay. Daniel Howitt. The thing I kept thinking about through 3,000 Years of Longing is that I really can't compare it to anything. And uh, that's what really drove me being a fan of this movie. Um, the structure is so unique. Uh, the way it tells stories from across the span of time. It, it's an ode to storytelling. It's uh, its beautiful. Um, so I really am a fan of this movie. I, I do understand why it's getting mixed reviews, but I, I was really engaged with the tone and the storytelling. Um, I think it's kind of this unabashed romantic story. Uh, two souls looking for love in very different ways and it's a very weird movie, uh, as you might expect, uh, with George Miller coming off of Mad Max. But uh, I never, I never thought that it crossed the line into being too weird that it was distracting. Uh, it definitely comes close, but it never crossed that line for me. Um, and and the pace is is relatively slow and deliberate, which which I think could turn some people off. But I think the, the melancholic tone really worked for me, um, and and so did the visual style. It's very grand and lush. And uh, yeah, so I definitely have problems once it got to the third act and it really started to try and explain things a bit more than, than I thought was necessary. But overall, I was just won over. Uh, you know, I think this is a very, a wholly unique, beautiful, weird romance that, that really drew me in. It was not what I expected George Miller to follow up Fury Road with, um, but, but it, it fully worked for me and I was, I was really into it. All right, Josh Parham, on to you, sir. Yeah, I think that my feeling about this movie overall, I I do find it to be very messy and kind of disorganized when it comes to its overall storytelling. But at the same time, I did find it oddly engaging all the way through, for the most part. I think, for me, the biggest issues were the beginning. Uh, I feel like the setup that they create is very awkward and i had a hard time like really getting invested in the kind of pieces that they were laying out for the story but i think once we really get into the gin being released then we get fully invested in what this movie's actually about which is the telling of these stories and what that means in more of a grander uh sense of of thematic weight I found myself getting more invested uh, personally into the film, and I did really like the visual style that it was going for. I I did like the stories in the past that they were telling, and I think even at the end when we sort of get away from that, it did kind of fall back into some bit of that awkwardness, but at the same time, I thought did dive deeper into its themes and into its commentary in a way that I still found to be interesting. So... It is a movie that I don't think works completely. It does have a lot of issues with it, and I very much understand why it wouldn't gel for many people. But I think there's enough in here that kept me interested, that that did entertain me, and did get me thinking about its overall themes that it was exploring that I found myself with it for the most part. And I do land slightly positive. It's very flawed, but I, I did I did like the movie overall in the end, I would say. Okay, wish number one. I wish that I emotionally connected with this more. Wish number two. I wish that the endless flashbacks felt less plotting and hollow. And wish number three, 
I too, Amy, wish it was longer. Because I do feel like there's a big chunk of this movie that's missing. So, those are my three wishes, Idris Elba. Feel free to grant them someday. (laughs) Or George Miller with a director's cut. I don't know. But in any event, though, 3,000 Years of Longing, I am very split on this movie. I'm ultimately leaning positive, I'll just say, for the very simple fact that as how it said before, this is wholly original, very unique filmmaking and something that, as I said at the top, you only get to do when you've delivered a success uh, with your previous film and the studio basically gives you free reign to go do then something that's entirely your own. I admire the sentiment of this movie in terms of the commentary and the breakdown of storytelling and how important and vital that has been through thousands of years of human history and how it's evolved over the years and also too just coming out of the pandemic how this is something that obviously unites us as a people and so that's all well and good you know and I feel like I have a just really mixed reaction to this movie because these flashbacks, the, these these stories that the Jin tells to Alafia that take up, I think, like 70% of this movie's runtime, they got less interesting to me as the movie went on because in terms of the stories themselves, I think they got better, but the pacing of the movie felt very touch and go. Like it felt like we were moving forward with something that had momentum. And then all of a sudden it felt like we just came to a screeching halt all of a sudden. So the way that this movie kind of builds up towards Alafia, who is a character that is built up to be someone who has everything that she could ever want. She, you know, does not have a family. She has no kids or anything like that, but she's very, very content with her life. She previously had a husband who died a few years ago Uh, But where she's at in her life, she doesn't want to, like, actually wish for anything. And I think the movie goes downhill the minute that Vajen grants her her first wish. Everything in the lead up to that, I was actually on board with because I think this movie is at its best when it's actually at its most stripped down and bare with Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton in these white bathrobes in this horribly looking hotel room because quite frankly I just don't understand why it's shot so hideously it's like the least pleasing aesthetic looking aspect of the movie but yet the dialogue and the acting between the two and how they are just trading ideas on the nature of wishes love intimacy um, time storytelling that to me is when the movie is actually at its strongest I I really need to push back a little bit Matt on you describing them as endless flashbacks. If you'll allow me, to it's it's a huge chunk of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. No, you're you're totally right. But I think calling them flashbacks, even though that's technically true, I think that implies that they're like diversions from the main story, and that is just not the case at all. That is the story. Uh, the, these tales from the past are the story. They never divert. From the pace of the story, I think it's painting this picture. I disagree uh, because I'm going to I'm going to push back on you now because the movie starts off with Alafia's perspective in, you know, this real world setting. And eventually she gets to the hotel, meets the gen and he tells the stories and the stories are told from his point of view. And she 
is never inserted into any of these flashback stories or anything like that. So, no, I, I, I think it, I think it is a diversion from her story. Oh, no, I agree with Howard on this one. Like, I, I feel like that is the point. <laughs> That's exactly. The point that we're watching the movie is that is the point. These tales from this gin and those stories are not, you know, like there's a kind of basic entertainment value to them, but they are also the driving force of the whole themes of this movie about storytelling and how mm -hmm. he has gone through all of these years and absorbed all these stories and how this collection of experiences informs him and now will inform her. I don't disagree with any of that. I think you're right. And I think that that is all well and good. What bothers me about these uh, stories is that they're mostly told uh, through the voiceover and we are never like fully immersed in getting to know the characters within these stories and the actors who play them. We don't really like get to see scenes play out in a typical narrative sort of way. They, they are, as I said before, flashbacks with Idris yeah. Elba mostly telling the story via voiceover. So I think that's where the disconnect for me emotionally comes in. I think that's a fine, that's a fine criticism. I, I mean, I think I personally disagree with the way I engaged with it, but I think I, you know, that if they didn't work for you, I think that's, that's fine. I really think that is it because for yeah. me, it's like I, I'm I'm invested in the Jin and I'm invested in Alafia as characters, but these other characters that are part of these stories, yes, they're interesting stories, and yes, I understand how they all play into the greater themes, and yes, the visuals are awe-inspiring, courtesy of cinematographer John Seal, but that's where the movie just started to lose me in terms of momentum, emotional connectivity. And I just always had this kind of push and pull with the movie on a uh, on a more emotional level. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The thing that really made them stick for me and, and work for me is actually how they set up Alethea's story. Um, I, I initially, right as the movie was starting, I thought, it was immediately a little too on the nose having her be a, a what is it a narratologist? Oh yeah, I'm like I've never even heard of that <laughs> yeah. before. Yeah, is that a real <laughs> is that a real position? I'm not sure. But regardless, at first I thought it was too on the nose, but then as it started to move forward, I think that's what made it con made, made that that was the connecting tissue between Alethea and the Jin story in that uh, story. The concept of story is what's driving this whole thing. It's what makes Alethea not immediately want to make her wishes. It's it's what makes the makes her invested in what in the Jin story. She wants to hear these stories that he has to tell, and it paints this picture of I, I don't know what other word to use of of longing across these generations and centuries. Um, and so that's that's what really kept me invested. Is it's just this kind of almost an ode to storytelling and that's why they didn't they don't feel like diversions at all to me i will say this that you know like how he just kind of wants her to wish away the three wishes and you know go about his way and everything and she's all like no 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 let's talk let's like 
I want to get to know you. It almost feels like somebody just wanting to have sex and the person being like, no, 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 no. I want to get to know you as a human being first. And it's like, no, no. <laughs> and considering like the setting and considering that there is always this underlying sexual tension between the two of them. I actually think that that's what makes those scenes work for me as well. They, they feel very uh, passionate and they feel extremely uh, sexual in a way that isn't like overtly so. But like it's like kind of simmering like underneath in the subtext of everything that they're discussing. Mm-hmm. And I think once they fully act upon it, the movie just loses something for me in that section towards like the third act versus everything that kind of proceeded before it where it really felt like I was digging deep into who these two characters are, him through his stories and her through her reactions to the stories and discussing like her justifications for why she lives her life the way that she does. Yeah, that the third act, I do think becomes something different than what kind of preceded it. I mean, it's sort of still connected thematically, but I think it's ambitions in terms of what it is actually trying to say shift a little bit it becomes a little bit more internalized whereas before when we are hearing the Jin stories i think it's more of a macro view of things it's more about how just storytelling in general impacts us and then it becomes a little bit more uh narrow in its focus and i i do think that that abrupt shift is a little off-putting at first and it's not quite as effective for me i do find a lot of stuff in the third act to be very interesting from a character perspective. And I think there are details in there that are really uh, sort of interestingly explored, but I will admit that it doesn't have the same momentum as you had mentioned earlier, Matt, as those earlier scenes, but I still think there is some value in what they're trying to get at in the third act. I mean, the whole thing with like the electromagnetism and how he loses the ability to Mm. speak and I just feel like the movie is throwing so much at us in that third act when really it should be trying to wrap itself up at that point. And I almost feel like the sprawling nature of the storytelling, it's weird because it's epic and intimate at the same time. So much of this movie takes place inside that hotel room that once I feel like we leave that hotel room, it's like, oh, I feel like we're all of a sudden now in a totally different movie. Mm. A little bit. Yeah. 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 I, I agree. I, th- I love the way you describe that, Matt. Epic and intimate at the same time. I think that's exactly exactly right. Um, and and yeah, I think I think once this movie starts to try to explain things a bit too much in the in the third act, the electromagnetism, all that, I completely agree. Even though I, I definitely didn't lose me, I'm still very positive on this movie overall. It it there were I was kind of like, all right, we this isn't this isn't what we're here for. We're not here for a scientific explanation of Jen. We're here for I mean, no, but at the same time, like I, I wrestle with it because I think it's like the presentation is just very clunky to me, and that's the reason why I don't connect with it. But at the same time, yes, there is like this scientific explanation they want to give to the gin, but it also is to me, a very fascinating way to explain why the nature of how we tell stories now is not the same as it was in the past. Because, yes, yeah. he is made of this electromagnetism and he's interfering with all the like television stations and he's picking up all of these different stories that are just flooding us and are so disorganized and disconnected and we can't really focus in on something. And that is very fascinating to me. Yes. And I do think that, yes, it gets a little as I say, like clunky in the execution towards the end. But at the same time, the ideas that it does bring up, I still find to be very engaging, even if 
I wish I could connect with it a little bit better. I, I agree on the idea aspect of it all. In fact, I actually think that this movie's breakdown of what a djinn is and how it has functioned throughout uh, society in terms of its own uh, piece of storytelling and the way that Alafia is very, very aware of the fact that, you know, any story involving a djinn and witches is always a cautionary tale. I did like all this like meta commentary that broke all this down. It would be like, you know, if you were watching Disney's Aladdin, like, yes, it does probe some questions into like the morality of wish granting, but not really. And this movie, I feel like is actually digging really, really deep into it. And in a way that feels very mature and is for adults. And, you know, I appreciate as an adult that kind of storytelling. Um, I I, I also think that it was uh, well thought out and smart. And, you know, that's the stuff that I engaged with most of all in terms of, you know, the dialogue and uh, the this this ultimately the story really was kind of like this deconstruction of what a djinn represents and how a djinn works, even though uh, I, you guys have heard me complain about this before in other reviews for other movies and stuff. Anytime you like introduce a all powerful, omnipotent like being I'm always unclear as to like what the rules are. And I feel like the movies that portray these types of godlike characters also don't do a good job of explaining like what can they do? What are they limited in? Why is he granting like this one character infinite knowledge uh, and not doing it by just simply snapping his fingers and boom, she's all of a sudden super smart versus she is like she has all these books and she has to like immerse herself in all these books and then she gains the knowledge like what are the rules here you know what i mean i will say like the one part of the individual stories that i really did sort of gravitate towards is how he did almost get those free wishes from someone else and the individual relationships that he did develop in these stories and how close he was to actually falling in love and yes I, I love that comparison, especially when we're flashing back to the hotel with Alethea and his almost hesitancy to try and do that again, even though he's so desperate. It's been 3,000 years. He wants to get out of this sort of lock that he's in. That was the one part of the flashback, quote and flash uh, part of the story that I really did gravitate towards. Yes. Almost a part that felt human in comparison to this fantasy world. I completely agree. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. Yeah, I mean how how human is that? It's not uh, when we when we don't look at it as wishes but just simply relationships, right? How close we may have come in our previous you know, in in previous relationships to giving our full selves and fully being won over by this other person and then you know, something happens, a betrayal or whatever it might be. I, that's that's kind of why I, I really was drawn in by this story as a whole, because I think it's um, as unique as it is. Uh, it just really captures this melancholy and romance in a unique way that um, I think just that speaks to a lot. That's not just about a magic genie, you know? Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And I agree with what Amy said before, too, that the flashbacks are at their strongest when they establish uh, very strongly the Jin's own uh, feelings towards the stories. And so whether he's directly involved in a romantic uh, uh, interest in the past or I'll tell you, that sequence where like the bottle becomes so close to being found and then it isn't. And then it's like just more time of him being trapped like that stuff I was like really, really captivated by because they do a really good job of 
putting you in the mindset of this character who literally for thousands of years is trapped and it's not like he's sleeping he's able to wander and see things and do things like throughout this world but not actually have any like interaction or impact or like actually be able to connect with anybody and it's just such a lonely existence and I love how that's contrast with also Alafia's existence even though it's obviously in a much shorter span of time and how the parallels are just created between these two in terms of their isolated lives uh, that somehow, some way through time and the cosmos and, you know, the nature of storytelling somehow brings these two unlikely individuals together. Which is mostly what you get, I think, in the third act. Obviously, it really focuses in more on the two of them. And I will say that from a character perspective, I do think they exist more to explore that theme rather than to actually be built up. Uh, I didn't really have an issue with the characters in the stories kind of being flat because I, I think that by the very nature of the movie, it, they that is their focus. And I, I was OK with that. But once we get out of it, yes, we're supposed to be more so focused in on the relationship between these two individuals. And I do think that that is a little bit of a frustration for me that they don't really go that deep. I mean, they kind of they do enough to like kind of get by. But I think that there's more that they could like dig really deep into that. And that is a little lacking for me, at, especially when we get into the finale, when it really starts to rely heavily on their interactions and their emotional journeys. So one thing I was bringing up before, Josh, I'm just curious if you feel the same way or not. I feel like there is, you know, because this movie is 108 minutes. If It almost feels like to me this movie was like 135 minutes and it just feels like there's pieces of this movie missing somewhere especially in the third act is do you think that that's also the case or i mean it feels a little truncated towards the end uh, for sure and i but i also don't know if that is just because the type of story that it's telling shifts so dramatically that it just feels like there should be more i i i feel like Towards the end, yeah, it does sort of rush a bit, but at the same time, I still find myself being engaged with the ideas that it is bringing up. Could that be more successful if they took more time with it? I, I think you can make that argument, but I also just think that by the very nature of the tone sort of switching so dramatically, that already kind of sets up a, a problem for me. I also, too, was constantly wondering, even though there were references throughout with him interacting with other characters in Alafia's life, I was always wondering, is he real or is he a figment of her imagination? And the movie decides to clearly establish that he is real. But then that kind of opened up a series of other questions that I now had. And I felt like I was going way too deep then all of a sudden like into a bottomless pit of asking questions with no answers to them. And that's another aspect where I feel like the film was missing some more information to fill in those gaps for me. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I'm not sure what I wanted at the ending. I, I, I won't pretend to know what would have made a better ending, but like I think so much, uh, you know, 90% of this film is 
allegorical. You know, it's it's not it, it could be all in her head. Right. It could just be happening in her mind in this hotel room. And then and then as it moves into the third act, it just gets a lot more specific and real. And I think that's what made the third act not land so much for me because I think it just made everything so much more grounded in comparison to the rest of it um, that it started to lose some of the magic, uh, you know? So that's, uh, and that goes along with the scientific explanations and all that. I agree with what Josh was saying earlier that, that uh, I think it's interesting, the perspective on storytelling in the modern world. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think if they had been able to maybe capture it without showing us how it all plays out, uh, that might have been more engaging, but um, I'm not sure if more time would have helped. Right, because initially, I really feel like this movie just really goes hard in on just being like a fable, where you're not really supposed mm -hmm. to buy all the logic, but you can just sort of go with it. You know, you're in these fantastical realms and these stories, and you just sort of accept it. You accept the logic that's being presented. And I do think, yeah, going into the more specific, scientific, grounded nature of the finale, it's not that I'm opposed to that, it just in general, but it is juxtaposed against what came before it, it's just very different. And I don't think the movie successfully makes that transition from the more fantastical fables to a more grounded kind of story, even though I think what's in that grounded story can still be very compelling, but it just is, it doesn't work when you put it up against what the majority of the movie was doing before that. Now I got to give credit where creds due here. I'm going to still call them flashbacks, Daniel, sorry, but the three stories, flashbacks, whatever you want to call them, they all look really gorgeous. Production design, costumes, cinematography, makeup. I mean, I said it before, I'll say it again. George Miller unleashed. I mean, unhinged, maybe. <laughs> like, there was nobody around to say, no, George, no. <laughs> he just went all out. And as messy as it was at times, and I was, like I said, kind of drifting in and out in terms of being like emotionally on board or just fully disconnected from it from a visual standpoint I was really mesmerized by some of the stuff that they pulled off here it was like it was like what if Zack Snyder decided to not make superhero movies and things of that nature <laughs> you know what I mean because it had like that really heightened fantastical green screen, oversaturated, high contrast look to it that just made it so vibrant and vivid with colors that just leaped off the screen. That's I, yeah, I agree. I think that's what, what made me love it. I think I think lesser filmmakers would try to make these flashbacks feel so much more grounded, you know, um, less fantastical, believable. And you know what? They probably would have had smaller budgets and they would have been forced to probably. <laughs> OK, Fair, fair. <laughs> uh, but but I, yeah, I love that he just leans into the fantasy of it. This isn't a story about historical accuracy. There are just also I don't think anybody's mentioned yet. There are just random creatures in those flashbacks that that are never referenced or mentioned or anything. They're just there. Uh, and I thought that was so weird in the best way. Like, I think that's where I was getting the Snyder vibes from, because it reminded me of 300 a little bit in that sense. 
a little bit, a little bit. I I think it's uh, leaps and bounds better than 300, but that's just my opinion. Oh, no, no, no. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think uh, he's just playing in this fantasy world and not so much. That's that is why, like we were saying, this this feels this is like a fable. This is like, a you know, a, just a fantasy. This isn't about uh, showing us what life was really like in, you know, uh, you know, the, the 3000 B.C. or whatever. I also think even the production design of a hotel room is almost perfect. It's so simple and almost badly done, but it feels so separate from all the fantasy worlds and even like Alethea's house that we are able to separate those moments and it almost creates a more intimacy between the djinn and Alethea because that's the only thing we can focus on in those moments. There's nothing else to really distract us at that time. I hated that hotel room aesthetically. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> it just, I don't get that. <laughs> it, it's like overblown and like it's whites. And I just think that the colors and ev- it's like something about it. Just to me, it just looked visually ugly. Uh, everything in that hotel room. And maybe that is the point. That's what I took it as. But it, but it also has like the same vibrancy in terms of the, uh, the lighting and the way that it just... Uh, kind of leaps off the screen in terms of brightness that I almost wish it was more dim or shot on film even. Maybe that would have been really cool to play around with shooting digitally in film to give uh, both the real world and then these flashbacks a different feel to them. But uh, something just for those scenes in particular from a visual standpoint, even though I loved everything Elva Swinton and the screenplay were doing, I just, uh, nah, sorry. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think there's only so much you can do with two people in a hotel room. Well, <laughs> think, hey, you know, you know what? Like, Good luck Leo Grande made it very exciting. Sure, but I also feel like there is sort of an intentionality, as Amy said, to uh, comparing and contrasting these situations where, yes, this hotel room is pretty static for the most part, and then you escape to these very fantastical sequences from the past. Like, I I kind of got what they were sort of going for, at least in my mind, and I, it did not bother me as much as it did for you, Matt. Like, I understand that, yes, the setup and, and the way that they shoot those sequences are not particularly, you know, inventive, but at the same time, I didn't really have a big issue with it because I sort of found a reason for it to be looking like, like that. And it, you know, it, like I said, it just didn't really bother me as much as it did you. It didn't need to be inventive. I just wanted it to look better. That's all. <laughs> I will say also too, I didn't mention his name before. Uh, Tom Holkenberg, chunky XL, really, really underrated work going on here in terms, in terms of the score, lots of different styles and tones and I think it's actually one of the more unsung elements of this movie that I've heard about in reviews and everything else. Like, nobody seems to really be talking about the score for this movie. And I don't know if that's because maybe you guys feel differently than I do. I thought it was really fantastic in this. Oh, no, I made a point to, like, specifically say even my opening statement. I love the score. It's still one of my favorite scores of the year. And you can even hear it just in the trailer. That was a part of the trailer that actually got me both excited. I had already seen the film at this point, and it still made me excited in a weird way. Yeah. I don't really get a handle on this. Are we just all in agreement that Swinton and Idris Elba are good in this? I mean, I don't think they're, like, excellent, but, like, I thought the chemistry between them was pretty good and 
I thought they were both decent enough. You know, neither one of their performances blew me away or anything like that. But, like, are we all in agreement that they're good? Yeah, I think, oddly enough, I think Swinton actually does impress me a little bit more, even though you could almost make an argument that Elba should be the more focal point of the story because he's the one who's driving these stories that he is telling and should be more central. But I do think by the very nature of the character of the Jin, he is a little passive. And I, and I just think that means that Elba's performance just is sort of functional and he's good, but I don't think that he has like quite the resonance that Swinton brings who I, I just find that that is just a more interesting character for her to play. And therefore I'm just a little bit more engaged by the performance she gives and the emotional journey that that character does go on. Like I do actually sort of like the ending when she realizes sort of what her actions actually mean. And even though she is a very smart and informed person, she should have kind of seen that coming and was still taken in by his kind of magic presence. And, and so that I really did like from her. I think the two of them together, their chemistry is fine. I don't think they'd really set the screen on fire for me, but they, they have good interactions. But I also think between the two of them, Swinton was a little bit more impressive to me. I actually think the, the you said, you know, they they weren't setting the screen on fire. I actually think that's exactly what this movie needed is uh, there's not when you think of Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton being co-stars, you don't immediately think, wow, this is going to be a really steamy movie. Like, I, I think it works that they have this sort of subdued. They have like personal chemistry, but not it's not like sex appeal on the screen. Uh, it's not like they're you think they're about to, uh, you know, just hop into bed at any second. I think this being more personal and just more gently romantic, I think works a lot. I think their casting is really perfect. The two of them together. I agree. I don't think either of them are, you know, uh, awards worthy necessarily, but I, I think they just they work really well together. And I think the casting is great. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, so final thoughts on 3,000 Years of Longing. Amy, we can go to you first. Anything that we didn't mention or something you want to reiterate? There's not really much that I don't think we have actually covered. I think we've done a pretty good job. It might have been like a quick review, but the scale of this film, I feel, is so small despite the world that it's in. And I kind of love... It's a weird love-hate of the contrast between how intimate the story is and the expansive world building but I think my flaw with the final act is that it tries to merge the two and I wish they just kept those two worlds almost separate Mm -hmm. because as soon as they join together we lose the fantastical touch that the djinn is and it also feels like it stops feeling grounded as well in these really strong themes of romance and relationships and having that base of sort of wishes on so I think that was my problem with the third act kind of having this conversation with you guys is that I've kind of wished the two tones didn't merge as much at the very end well I cannot grant you your wish Amy 
it is what it is. <laughs> I do like that that you uttered the phrase "I wish." <laughs> yes. Oh, plenty of wishes with this film. Yeah. All right, Daniel Howitt. Yeah, I, I really feel like I've touched on most of my thoughts here as well already. You know, um, this week as I, I was trying to describe the movie to, to some coworkers, um, I was really coming back to the fact that I can't really compare this movie to anything else. I I, I can't think of another you know, restrained romantic fantasy in this vein, you know, uh, or ones that are centered on storytelling in the same way. Um, I know I already acknowledged it earlier, but Matt, I really love what you said, uh, epic and intimate. And I think that describes this movie so well. And I think that's why it feels so unique. Um, I also think the movie's kind of deceptively simple. Uh, maybe that's why our review is a little short today. You know, I, it's not necessarily complex, um, but I, I in, t- in terms of the story, the plot of it, um, but I think the emotion is all there. And I think that's what I really connected to. And yeah, I just uh, I, I for some I just couldn't stop thinking about this movie. I, I really just dug what it was going for um, and how unique that how unique it really is. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the split reviews on things like Rotten Tomatoes and some other uh, metrics I've seen over the last couple of days speak to this very mixed reaction that I'm seeing from people where some people connect with it more heavily like you did, Howitt. Other people are more skeptical. I've talked to some people who downright hated it. Yeah, as I was watching the movie, I I was thinking, man, I'm digging this. I also totally understand why people wouldn't. And I was also thinking... Uh, mass audiences are going to hate this movie is what I is what I was thinking. And I was seeing this at a public press screening, you know, packed, fully packed house. Um, and I was like, man, this audience is going to hate this movie. And then they broke out into applause at the end. I was so shocked. And that does not normally happen uh, that that public screenings like this have applause. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm I am curious to see how, you know, non-movie people feel about this movie because it doesn't seem like it's something that that they would normally love. I would not recommend this to some of my non-movie friends, you know? Well, it's interesting because my prediction for that is I think younger people are going to be less interested in it, but I think that older demographics will definitely enjoy it more, even though it feels like some of the more fantastical stuff would turn them off. I think they're going to... Maybe uh, uh, the themes of this movie will emotionally resonate with a more adult, mature audience. No, I could I could see that. Yeah, I, I think that kind of just the nature that it's sort of old school storytelling to begin with. You know, even though there is very flashy and eccentric methods to the filmmaking, the kind of core at the heart of the actual narrative is a little more traditional, I find. Like, even the romance kind of feels a little bit more like a more mature relationship that they're entering into. So, yeah, I can understand that perspective. And considering that this is a guy with a career that spans decades, you know, going all the way back to the 70s, I think that that's to be expected, that there would also be kind of this old-fashioned sentimentality and approach to the storytelling that would combined with new technological breakthroughs in filmmaking, you know, I, I think you get kind of a nice merger of the two. Uh, with that said, Josh Parham, final thoughts. Um, I think the only thing is just, I would want to also just 
emphasize again that the crafts of this movie, I think, are really exceptional, especially in those sequences where we go back to these stories. Like, I just loved the all of those aesthetics. And weirdly, it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of, like, a more expensive version of fairy tale theater that show with Shelley Duvall that I remember watching <laughs> as a kid that I really, really loved. And maybe it tapped into that kind of nostalgia for me and, and the reason why I kind of found myself being wrapped up in those sections so much. But yeah, I, I really did like the, the stories that they went back to. I just found all of those visuals to be so great and the worlds that they were creating just, it was so rich and, yeah, even from a character from a character perspective, it was a little limiting. I just found myself really engaged by the worlds that they were presenting and the aesthetics on display. And I, I really thought those sections of the movie, for me, were the strongest. Uh, okay, a couple of final thoughts here. Um, I liked Alafia's neighbors that we see in the third act, and I wish there was more of them in this movie. Yeah, are were they in Mad Max? I feel like they were, because one of them, uh, her face, she reminded me of. Um, I thought they were like the the old women that showed up at the end of Fury Road. That's what I was thinking too. Yes, I'm, I'm pretty confident that it is. Yeah, I, they were good, and I agree. They, I feel like there should have been more of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, question for all of you: Do you think that Alafia is a gin herself? Uh, what? (laughs) (laughs) So I was just thinking a lot about her journey in this movie and how she can hear like the same frequencies that he can when they are connected to one another. She has those interactions with the djinns before she meets him in the first like couple of scenes in the movie. She lives an isolated life that's also, like I said earlier, uh, paralleled with his life of isolation. I don't know. There was just like a part of me. And granted, I don't think that the movie ever gives an answer for this. I really think this is all left open to interpretation. But that never occurred to anybody here at all. Uh, I wouldn't say that I ever thought that she was a djinn. I think that it's more so just connecting their isolation. I, I think that is more so what is the point there. Um, I will admit that like her seeing the stuff at the beginning of the movie, I I don't know <laughs> really what that was about. No, me and that's why and that's where it all stemmed from. I was trying to make sense of it and I was saying earlier, like I was kind of forced to ask questions during this movie that led me going down these paths that I was like, whoa, I think I'm straying way far off from what George Miller is like intending here. Yeah, but I feel like what, maybe I, what it was getting at, at least with what she was seeing at the beginning, maybe that was like her being called to yeah. the gin because I remember one of those people, I think when she's giving like that lecture that uh, the very tall apparition that shows up, I think he actually is in one of the flashback scenes. Yes, so is, I kind of like looking back on it, think like maybe that was the Jin's method of trying to like call her to, to find him. But outside of that, I don't think it's really meant to be like, she's a magical creature herself. I think it's more so she is like sensitive to the, you know, the electromagnetism that he's putting out and the fact that she's also a an isolated character that is a something that connects them emotionally throughout the story that's exactly what i thought josh i thought it was just calling calling her to 
the the bottle. That's the same way that he kind of call. Well, it's not the same way, but he 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 does similar things to call people in his stories to kind mm-hmm. of find the bottle. So, um, I I almost considered you know there there was that uh the, the person at the airport who kind of who grabs her cart, um, and I was trying. I I don't know what those things mean. Uh, I don't. I I'm not sure what he was going for there, but yeah, I think. I think it was just calling her to the bottle. And I got to just ask this just from a personal opinion standpoint, because I kind of went back and forth on this as well. Are we in agreement that we like the contrast between the more mundane and ordinary scenes that are more grounded versus the fantastical stories? Or do we wish it leaned more towards one side versus the other? Because there's like a version of this movie where... I feel like it does not have a $60 million budget and it has like a $10 million budget. And it's like essentially like a play, a two hander in that hotel room of two great actors. And maybe we get some flashbacks, but they're just not as grand and spectacular. And I don't know. I just kept wondering, is there a better presentation of this story that would work better for me? And I kind of kept coming back to, wow, you know, this would actually maybe work as a play someday if anybody ever chose to like you know buy the rights from Miller and adapt it. Mm, I I don't know because I did like the fantastical stuff. Like I I think the problems are actually when it strips that away towards the end and is trying to be more grounded. Like I I like that we get sequences that are just weird and wild and we you know don't have to be so totally grounded in reality and history. Like I like those sections of the movie quite a bit. And I feel like it's when we get away from it is when the storytelling just isn't quite as impactful to me. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I I mean like these, this is all kind of fueling that. I don't really know what to make of this movie. Almost. I know that it is unique. I know that it is something that is worth seeing in a theater. And I say that with a slight bit of hesitancy because I don't know how people are going to react to this because there is just such a wide range of reactions I've seen so far from people. So I would say see it for yourself and however you respond to it, good for you because I think that every single reaction I've heard to this movie is valid to some degree or another. (laughs) Uh, But for me... I appreciated the big swing. I appreciated the ambition. I respect and admire that George Miller was really pretty much allowed to do anything that he wanted with this. And that's a rarity, I feel like, nowadays. So on that basis alone, it just barely teeters into positive territory for me. I'm go- I'm giving it a 6 out of 10. Amy, what about you? Yeah, when I initially wrote the review for Beside, I gave it a 5 out of 10. I think I'm going to bump it up to a six purely because like four or five months later, I've still not seen anything out this year, which is quite like this film. And I really want to encourage more companies to continue producing these sorts of films. Daniel Howitt. I am settling on an eight out of 10. I Whoa. think if we were, if we were, if we were doing 0.5, I'd probably be like a 7.5 out of 10. So maybe like a, maybe like a soft eight. Um, but yeah, I I have to round up for this. I I was really into it, even though I have some issues. With I was it. not expecting you to be this high. <laughs> I, I was I was really into it. Like I said, I I'm between a seven and an eight. I could I could maybe after some time drop it down to a seven, but uh, I'm I'm settling on an eight. Okay. Hey, listen, you loved it. I get it. 
All right, Josh. I don't know. I can't get a read on you with this one. I'm guessing a five, but hit me. What do you have? Now, I'm actually going to say a seven out of ten. Whoa. Like, I, okay. I, I did like the movie, and it does have a lot of problems with the storytelling for sure, but it, I think it's one of those things where – when I was engaged by it, I found myself really entertained and and I very much appreciated what it was going for. And even in the parts where I was a little bit frustrated, I still f- saw the potential of what it was trying to get at. And I still found those concepts to be interesting. So even when the execution wasn't that great for me and I wish it could be better, I still appreciated what it was at least trying to tell me from a thematic perspective. And I I really appreciated that. So even though it's very flawed, I still did really enjoy what it was trying to attempt to to, to say, even when it wasn't always successful. So it, it kind of is like a soft seven, honestly, but Overall, I still did enjoy the movie and would recommend it for people who want to see something that can be both visually inventive and at the same time also have a pretty interesting story and theme and commentary at the center of it. I am amazed by this because I wonder if we asked all the other members of NBP what their ratings are. I wonder if we could all touch upon every single numerical grade here. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> And you know if what? We need more this movies a one, like that. Yeah. If anybody gives this a one, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if there was like one holdout and they gave it a two and somebody else gave it a two, I'm sure I could get them to bump down to a one just so that we could achieve this feat of having that kind of a range of reactions to this. Oh, man. who Whoever just said a second ago that we need more movies like this, I uh, completely agree because... I do think that these are the types of movies that do produce the best kinds of reviews all the time as well, because I'm always fascinated to understand why a movie works for some people where it doesn't work for me. And then also too, explaining and understanding, you know, the opposite. So that to me is better than all of us just kind of sitting here and saying, oh, I love this. And then everybody uniformly saying, yeah, it's great. Exactly. I mean, one of the reasons why we love George Miller. One of the reasons why we love George Miller, of many. Okay, so then with that said, Oscar potential for 3,000 years of longing. You know, at, at first glance, when I when I was watching this, I was thinking to myself, okay, I could see a world where this gets maybe a costume design nomination. Maybe it makes a visual effects shortlist. Maybe not. You know, and I just like... There were all these like maybes, but now I feel, especially because I've seen this movie at this point, I think like two months ago at this point, and I've had some time to, you know, really let it settle and sit sit on it. I see this movie being a little too weird for the Academy, and I mm-hmm. think it's going to land zero nominations when all is said and done. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I, I, I think it's going to be one of those movies I feel like. I could imagine me keeping this movie in my 10 predictions for like costume design or visual effects most of the year. Um, Like, I think it's going to be right there. Like it could get nominations, but yeah, I, I I ultimately think it zeroes out. I mean, the costume design I think is the best shot. Yeah, I I would say so. Also because I think the costume designer is a little bit more established and, you know, oftentimes that, really matters when when it comes to getting Oscar nominations, but I still think it'll struggle. Like it'll probably get mentions that, you know, some of the guilds, especially in like those fantasy categories, but I do think it will struggle to break into a five. It'll be kept in the conversation. I, I agree with that sentiment, but I don't know how 
far it will really get in those categories. Yeah, it seems like there's probably going to be a lack of passion for his film, and I struggle to see it even making back its box office, which is not going to help in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean... It's interesting because like with visual effects too, there were times where I thought the visual effects were pretty good. And then there were other times like giant Idris Elba in the hotel room where I was like, ooh, why does this not look great? Yeah, like I the crafts are still really good for the most part, but I just think that, yeah, it's not going to be a big hit. It's coming out at the end of August, sort of being dumped and. Uh, you know, the studio is going to have larger, bigger priorities at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. I just don't feel like it's going to have the passion or the resources to really break into an Oscar conversation, even though there are elements that are worthy to be considered. And I think they will be considered, but I think that's as far as it's going to get. Yeah. Yeah. So anyone that was hoping that George Miller was going to repeat his success of Mad Max Fury Road. You're going to have to wait till Furiosa to find mm. out. <laughs> I mean, Fury Road was already kind of a miracle. I, I don't think. Yeah, we yeah. no, that totally. Yes. Matt Max Fury Road is like a once in a generation type of movie. Uh, true. For real. Mm-hmm. Okay. With that said, Amy Smith, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Films with Amy. Daniel Howitt. You can find me on Twitter at Howitt DK. Josh Parham. You can find me on Twitter at JR Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.